when you really see the nature of things and you live in accordance with them, it's beautiful. It's that transformative. So is that a really deeply metaphysical and theological way of saying that shit happens and somewhere deep buried in it is a pony? <laughs> wow. Ogan Boulder, the great philosopher of our times. <laughs> Welcome to episode 45 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a craft-brewed pint, maybe a fine wine, or perhaps a cup of tea. You can watch us live Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time at pubtheology.com, and you can listen anytime on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, and now you can even catch us on the New Thought channel. Tonight's episode is brought to you by our official sponsors. First up, as always, Craft Beer Cellar, the home of Premium Craft Brews, our official beer sponsor. Uh, their focus is amazing beer education, hospitality. Visit Craft Beer Cellar, the C-E-L-L-A-R.com for a location near you. And you can win free beer from Craft Beer Cellar by joining in on our conversation. Uh, you can comment on the social medias, media, medium. What is the rule? Media. Media. Media, right. There we go. Twitter, Facebook, um, I think you might even throw in Instagram if we post anything there occasionally. Uh, whatever. Uh, use the hashtag PTLive so we can find it. Or or you can call and leave us a voicemail. We, we, we have not received any listener voicemails yet. But you know what? I'm keeping hope alive. Keeping the faith. I believe in you. So you can call and leave us a voicemail. Comment a question, anything you want us to discuss. You can tell us what a wonderful job we're doing, what a horrible job we're doing, whatever. We, we'll take the criticism. We just oh. want voicemails. That's 980-PT-LIVE-0. Or for those of us without letters on our phone, that's 980-785-4830. And we actually, we actually, uh, I stand corrected, we actually have a voicemail. Um, I should now play this for you. Hold on, here we go. It's Tina. I'm currently driving on a highway in California, so I will not be on the show tonight, and I won't be able to listen in and text um, text comments, which is what I was hoping to do. But I hope you have a great time. I'm definitely going to listen tomorrow. I think here we have an amazing guest, and um, yeah, just uh, oh my god, I feel like I'm going. Um, have a great time, and I hope to meet the guest sometime because it's pretty cool. All right, take care, guys. Bye. So yeah, that was Tina. She is um, on her way to a job interview. We wish her the best of luck. And now that is officially uh, two voicemails that we have received, both from hosts of the show, which is mm-hmm. just a little mildly um, embarrassing. But so it, it does work. It does. It work. does work. We've that's, proven that's that. That's key. And our newest sponsor is Wink Wine Club. Wink features superbly crafted wines delivered right to your door, and you can get started at trywink, that's W-I-N-C dot com, slash PT Live, and you'll get $20 off your first order, not bad, and other savings. And I think if you order four bottles at once, it's a free shipping. Is that right, Hogan? That is correct. So that's how I do it. Order away, order away. Well, tonight we discuss 
whether someone can be a Buddhist and a Christian. Would they be a Buddhist Christian, a Christian Buddhist, or something else? So we'll hit on what are some of the similarities and differences between these two religious traditions. What are the tensions and conflicts? And what perhaps can they teach each other? And to help us sort it all out, I have wrangled my uh, local friend. Um, he is, uh, his name is Chandra Dasa. I think I said that right finally. Chandra Dasa, give me the thumbs up. Uh, he was ordained into the, this is where I'm going to butcher the names now, the Triratna. Triratna. Why don't you say it? <laughs> I'm call you say it. <laughs> That's it. You've just insulted my entire faith. I'm leaving. It's the Tri Ratna Buddhist Order. There you go. Tri Ratna Buddhist Order in 2001. He is from Scotland, so you'll enjoy his lovely little this evening. And he's been in the New Hampshire area since 2006. He is the co-chair of the Portsmouth Buddhist Center in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, just about half an hour away from me. And he's also the director of Dharma Chakra. Got that one right. Which uh, produces Buddhist online audio such as the free buddhist audio uh that podcast and so website the website and Trirat, Trir, i can say triratna <laughs> it's horrible Close. And, uh, and, to do this bit <laughs> yeah <laughs> their okay. website the buddhist center online <laughs> shut up practice shut up practice Woo. Woo. yeah welcome to the show and uh thanks man uh, welcome Good to have you here. Uh, before we go on any further, uh, so what does your name mean again? I, you told this to me before, and I'm going to let you explain it because I've, I've butchered enough things already for the evening. It's all right. Uh, my name is Chandra Dasa. Chandra means moon. And Dasa um, means slave or servant. But actually, the original meaning is slave. Um, very interesting word, quite a controversial word. Uh, slave of the moon or moon slave, or moon boy, as some of my friends like to call me. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it refers to quite a number of things. Uh, you, when you're ordained in our order, um, you have a private ordination and a public ordination. The private ordination tends to be in silence, just you and the person ordaining you, sometimes living together for a short period of time, and then just the two of you, and you're given this name in silence. And in our case, uh, we were given the names one evening and then we were silent for another few days until our public ordination when everybody found out everybody else's name. So I was given this name, Chandra Dasa. Um, the guy who gave me it uh, said to me, I wanted to give you a symbol rather than a concept. So he gave me the moon, partly because I was a poet and a bit of a kind of dreamy person um, in the sense that I drift off and dream about things. Ah. And uh, he also, um, there's a famous uh, text called um, the Bodhicharya Vitara, the, the Bodhisattva's Guide to Awakening. And uh, in it, there's a couple of images involving the moon and the idea of just having to give yourself up completely to a path of practice for other beings, which is where the, the slave service aspect comes in. So uh, the line was, in devotion, I offer myself as your slave, meaning you give yourself to the world and to the practice of the Buddha's Dharma for the benefit of all beings. So that was what was wrapped up in my name. And uh, I said to him, are you sure about the service bit? And he said, I don't want you to have a choice. <laughs> so, <Nice. laughs> 
<clears throat> so there you go. That's what he gave me. That is awesome. Thank you. So, Introduce yourself, Hogan. Yeah, we should we should do that. Uh, <laughs> um, I am Reverend Ogan Holder, um, co-host of this wonderful podcast, um, Senior Minister of Unity on the River in Amesbury, Massachusetts, author of Rants to Revelations, unabashedly honest reflections on um, life and the meaning of God. There's a... You know what? This is like a third podcast in a row where I can't get my own book. Yeah, where you're inventing what your book is called. And I and I looked it up. I looked it up, and I thought I had it memorized. Um, um, so just just remember, rants the revelations. I'll get it right next week. I promise. You got it. And what are you drinking tonight, sir? Oh, uh, so tonight, um, um, from Wink. This is a red blend Ooh. called Tin oh. and Country, and um. I started on it last night, and I'm finishing it up tonight. And I used to not be a real fan of blended wines, um, but um, when you when you subscribe to Wink, you 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 know they you fill out this palette profile, and they you can either choose the wines you want or you can let them send you some new stuff. So they they send me some blends, and they're really good. I'm, mm. I'm coming around on the whole blended wine thing. So yeah. Or the grapes? Does it say? Um, we got it's forty-eight percent Malbec, fifty-two percent Petit Verdot. So that's that's oh, the blend. Wow, Petit Verdot. Yeah. So, so it's a tasty one. I'm going to reorder this one again, for sure. Excellent. And my name is Brian Burkoff, and I am the pastor of Holland, UCC in Holland, Michigan, and author of the book Pub Theology, Beer Conversation, and God. And tonight I am drinking a beer to drink music to, a Belgian style triple from Dogfish Head. Dogfish, my old my old stomping grounds. You got it. And uh, and what are you throwing back tonight, Chandra Dasa? I'm throwing back a deeply mellow peppermint tea. Oh, nice! Yes. In my Camp Nanoraimo mug. Your Camp Nan. Oh, the Nano. Oh, did you do that? I did it. Yeah, last year I did it. Oh man, on my bucket list. On my bucket list. Actually, not last year, 2015. Sorry, 2015. Yeah, it was a good thing to do. It's a bit nuts trying to write 50,000 words in a month. But right. you know, I did it. I have the t shirt, got the mug. Good for you. Well, did we get a book out of it? Uh, well, I got, I've got 85,000 words of book, so there's, oh. I reckon there's another 50,000 to go. Ah, what's the, what's the ETA on, on, on your wisdom in print? Oh, I have no idea, to be honest. No idea. Then you are honestly a good writer, because that's the right that's the writer answer. I don't know when this is going to be done. I don't know. Yeah. There you go. So our um, you know, our, our listeners want to know, uh, since we're talking about deep topics tonight, what would happen if you shot a gun in space? Um, my theory is the bullet will stay where it is, and you go careen in the other direction. Ah, that's that's my theory. Or you? No, I, I think you'll both you'll both go opposite directions. And yeah, that's that's that sounds that sounds more um, like an educated answer than my first guess. There'd be no air resistance for the bullet, with there, and then the presumably the the recoil would send you backwards. You hear a bang? Ooh. No, not through the helmet. Not through the helmet. Well, you wouldn't hear bang because there's no air in space. And there's no ah, could you fire it? 
hands without air, without the oxygen to cause the Ooh. That's cause the explosion. I would think so. I don't know. Isn't 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 the isn't it the pressure on the the the, the plate that that causes the gunpowder to go off? I don't think it's a don't you, need like a, don't you need oxygen for combustion? No. Well, normally I would say you do, but but can't things can't things combust just based on extreme pressure? Well, via live sci the website LiveScience.com, I don't know how legitimate a source they are. They said guns can shoot in space, and exactly what you guys said that you know you and the bullet would be careening <clears> through <throat> space literally forever until you met an object of resistance. So which is a planet or an asteroid or or got sucked into a um, a gravity field. But if you're if you're in the solar system, eventually your bullet would get sucked toward the sun or one of the larger planets. Hmm. Hmm. But the really interesting thing is what what might happen if you shot a gun while on the moon. And they theorize that if you're standing on a mountain on the moon, you could theoretically shoot yourself in the back. How long would gravity it take? Gravity is so light, it would kind of maintain its trajectory off the ground and do a, do a complete orbit and return to you before it would drop. But you'd have time to get out of the way, I assume. <laughs> I think you yeah. would have time, yes. Don't try this at home, kids, just in case. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah, that's a fascinating <laughs> opening question there, Brian. <laughs> uh, well, not, yeah, well, you know, just, just warming us up here, warming us up here. So let's get to the meat of our conversation. A friend recently <laughs> posted to Facebook. She said, I met a woman today who combines Buddhism and Christianity and says their teachings are in alignment. She says Buddhism is a philosophy, not a religion. And so I would love to hear uh, both of your views on this, but especially Chandra Dasa. What, what would you say to a person who said that sort of thing? I can just sort of combine them and they're kind of in alignment. Oh, that's a pretty complex question. Um, I would say, um, <laughs> depends if I was being nice, if I was being accurate. I would say, um, uh, we, love, would say we love our listeners, so be nice. Okay, I'll be nice. Um, I would say, uh, whatever the, the Buddha was fond of saying to people, um, that whatever conduced to their uh, growth and development for a long time, uh, was compatible with the Dharma, his Dharma. On the other hand, I would also say that if you're going to um, compare two traditions, a good place to start is what they don't have in common, because once you've got that out of the way, you can start to connect up on all the things that they do have in common. Um, so Buddhism being a non-theistic religion, you've got quite a big thing to get past right there. There is no God. There's no creator God. Uh, right. In fact, the Buddha is quite explicit about that, which you could talk about if you like. But um, So I, I tend to say to... Um, Christians, and I, I come from a big Catholic family, I grew up Christian, um, that uh, the older I get, the more I can reclaim aspects of, of my own heritage as a Catholic, as a Christian, uh, but on the basis of knowing the difference. Um, on the other hand, if something's working for you, then that's a pretty good start. Do you, do you consider uh, Buddhism philosophy or religion? Um... It's one of these questions that gets uh, talked about on and off. Uh, I would say that Buddhism in practice, if you're going to use it to change your life, is uh, effectively a religion. If you live philosophy as a way of life at the depth of 
say the, the Greek philosophers, um, then maybe in a way it doesn't really matter whether you call it a philosophy or religion. The point is it changes your life and, it, and it's something that's transformative and transcendent. But uh, to work at that level, I think it has to be lived uh, in a kind of whole life sort of way. Mm. And for most people, that means religion, whatever, whatever you yeah. make of that word. Um, the danger of calling it just a philosophy is to relegate it to a set of ideas. And Buddhism is not a set of ideas, it's a set of practices that can actually change you. Yeah, I think there's some, I think many would, would take um, umbrage maybe to using the words religion and philosophy interchangeably. But in many ways, I think they are, they overlap in, in terms of um, in, improving our lives, transforming our lives, if you will. But, but yeah, they're definite distinctions. Yeah, I mean, maybe those distinctions aren't ultimate, but I suppose it depends on what what help what helps you um, what helps you become more aware and more more kind of deeply kind. If you can do that with the philosophy, if you can do that with the religion, it doesn't really matter what it is. Right, and and you noted that it's about a primarily about a set of practices, yeah, uh, and yet underlying those practices are certain um, views about the world or about. For sure. Um, the divine nature or lack thereof that exists in the world or within human beings. Could you, could you talk a little bit about maybe some of those and and sure, you know, just tell yeah, us yeah. what they are and, and how you might see that as in tension with the faith you grew up with or in alignment. Okay, yeah. So so um, anyway, if you were doing uh, elevated pitch on Buddhism, uh, you'd be like, well, what what sets Buddhism apart? Um, a friend of mine in Britain gave a very interesting talk called What Do We Really Know About the Buddha? Uh, he's a Sanskrit scholar. He was looking back and saying, well, actually, historically speaking, it's difficult to say very much about somebody who lived almost 3,000 years ago. But what you can say is that one of the, the, the central, in fact, the central idea in Buddhism uh, was unique at the time, and in a way is still unique. And this is the insight the Buddha had uh, where he talks about dependent origination or conditioned co-production. All things arise and pass away in dependence upon complex conditions. Sometimes you can identify what those conditions are. Sometimes you can't. So it's not the same as causality in philosophical terms, but all things arise and pass away in dependence upon um, complex conditions. So the conditions are there to support the arising of something it comes into being. It's never static. It's always sort of in motion. And then when the conditions are no longer there, it passes out of being. And from that central assertion about the nature of reality, the Buddha then identifies three or sometimes four qualities. First quality, because it's a constant process of arising and passing, there's no such thing as a beginning or an end. And and because of that, you can say, number one, everything is impermanent that, that operates within that frame of conditioned existence. Yeah? So impermanence suffuses and permeates the whole of reality as we experience it. Yeah? Because it's um, impermanent, it can't be said to have any substantial nature, so no eternal soul or fixed essence or any of that. Um, there's nothing that is just irreducibly a thing. Yeah, it's always coming into being and passing out of being. And uh, the third thing the Buddha tends to say about it is uh, because we don't see it that way, because we're almost wired up to see it, 
to see a world of permanence, to see ourselves as permanent and fixed. Yes. Uh, it's suffused by an experience of, of unsatisfactoriness or even outright suffering. And the trick from a Buddhist perspective that the practices are designed to help you pull aside the veils, as it were, and start to see the true nature of reality. And the Buddha's uh, supposition is that as you clarify and purify your vision of how things are and live more and more in accordance with them, that is a deeply transformative experience that finds its natural state in a deep awareness and its natural expression in deep compassion. Mm. And I think because of that, sometimes the Buddhist quoted as saying a fourth thing about reality, which is when you really see it, it's beautiful. The word he uses is shupa. When you really see the nature of things and you live in accordance with them, it's beautiful. It's that transformative. So is that a really deeply metaphysical and theological way of saying that shit happens and somewhere deep buried in it is a pony? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ogan Holder, the great philosopher of our times. <laughs> um, Just try I don't, to I, I, I don't think so, but okay. say more. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, so so I think I the, the the thing that I really love about what you just said is that thing about horizon the horizon of things and then that that suffering piece which i think most people um tend to outside of buddhism tend to put in a negative framework like suffering is bad sure. um where the fact is it is it is the suffering that transforms us as in as in the the discomfort the angst that causes us i think to to ask the deeper questions and and to look at ourselves and to make different choices, um, so again, yeah. hence stuff's going to be there. Shit happens, and there's a pony in there. If well, maybe already, already <laughs> there's 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 a thing for it. That's that's what I meant. I suppose it depends. Um, in in Buddhism, although people quite often talk about suffering in the Buddhist context, uh, suffering is often evoked as the beginning of the path of practice because. It's the thing that gives you enough motivation to do it. That's probably the same in most uh, religions, I suspect. Um, from a Buddhist perspective, the suffering... Path, the suffering never really ends. Suffering isn't the point, though. Suffering is just the arising of something based on conditions. Right. And the, the possibility of undoing suffering as a human being and, and being transformed by that is something that's a little bit different from traditional ideas of salvation, for instance. So the, su the, the suffering is, is contingent right it's not it, yeah it's not built in it's not like original sin it's not a it's not about the suffering but the suffering is there and you acknowledge it but yeah and sometimes you can't do anything about that i mean you you know you suffer you suffer in complex ways and you can't change the conditions but you can change your experience of them based on how you see them so buddhism is this kind of quite uh, interesting idea at the heart of it, which is that your perception shapes your experience rather than the other way around. So you learn to see things differently. You train yourself. The Buddha's always saying, thus should you train yourself. And eventually you start to experience reality differently because you're no longer as affected or blown around by the worldly winds as well. That's actually, uh, that's actually um, in unity... Um, when we look at our, our main principles in unity, um, that's one of them, of our five basic principles. That's the third one that 
basically says we create our experience through the power of our thoughts and our beliefs, which which sometimes people misinterpret as, you know, we, we, we're going to think it, therefore it's going to happen out there and it becomes like this kind of like think we're doing a magic spell when really telekinesis exactly exactly um when it's really that idea you just shared which is when we as we transform and we change our thoughts and we change our beliefs we see things differently and as we mm. see them differently yeah. we experience them differently we respond differently there's going to be different outcomes um so yeah it's in, in fact uh when when people ask me about, about unity i say unity is uh christians who want to be buddhist but they're not ready to give up god yet that's that's my unity elevator pitch <laughs> and you know what i always say to you at this point is why not <laughs> why, why aren't they ready to give up god yet because they're still a, they're still attached to the christianity piece of it god still has the meaning is that uh, cultural is that a cultural thing do you think in terms of um a set of, if you look at it as a set of conditions again so people are practicing in your community and um, mm -hmm. as you say there's quite a lot of the ideas that are, seem to be overlapping and is, is the attachment to god um attachment to set conditions that people are just used to and therefore it helps them practice do you think it's, there's a way in which it's a limitation what's the i think it's just a belief in god but again not not god in in the traditional like theistic sense but you know, God is God is more presence. Um, so, um, so yeah, it, it's well. That's that's our first principle. There's one power, and one presence. It's God the good. So, so mm. there's still there's still that mm. as well. Um, so you'll you'll find you'll find a lot of times people who um, were once involved in traditional Christianity, and they they come to unity because they may have had a crisis of faith a crisis of self and 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 the the, mm. the traditional christian loopholes no longer make sense for them and i don't mean i don't mean that in, in a in a uh you know disparaging way but you know sometimes in christianity when we come up against a roadblock you know sometimes the responses are you know god has a plan we don't know what that plan is you know or when things are happening in our life is like this predestination <laughs> idea, you're, you're following god's plan um, stuff like that. Um, and, and for a lot of people that stops working at some point in their lives, but they still want that. Um, I think what you were alluding to that experience of religion of spirituality, that's close enough to what they originated in, but now the theology is tweaked enough so that it kind of makes sense to both their brain and their hearts. What were you saying, Brian? Well, I wonder if that that belief in God or longing to believe in God or uh, whether you frame that as God as being or as simply presence uh, as in unity, is that longing that Chandradasa spoke about for permanence, for something that is essential, that's non-contingent in the universe. It is just is. Uh, and I hear you saying that in Buddhism, there, everything is contingent. There is no permanence. There is no thing that at bottom absolutely yeah. is, is eternal and simply is. Is that That's right? And it's and, and the Buddha, the Buddha kind of sees the danger in that that avenue and says, well, not, neither is there an eternalistic reality, nor is there a nihilistic reality. So it's not that 
it's nothingness in that kind of negative negativized way. Uh, it's very interesting how the Buddha uses language, at least in the scriptures that are written down, um, which is all several hundred years after he's dead, because it's an oral tradition at first. And he quite often uh, uses kind of negative space. It's almost like Keats's negative capability thing, where he says, it's not this and it's not that. It's like he describes the space around it and says, you can't, yes. you can't say it's this. He, well, he actually says, you can't say it this, you can't say it's that, you can't say it's neither this nor that, you can't say it's both this and that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think what it does is it kind of constantly pulls the rug out from under you. And if you are cultivating positive emotion, which is a key aspect of it, and all of that can open out into wonder and an experience of awe. Now, for sure, you know, Christians who have an experience of grace or wonder in, in that context might recognize some of those spiritual qualities or those experiences um there's a certain way in which you could say you, you know you pick your metaphors and you go and live inside them um i think that the danger with any metaphor is it's always got a front door and a back door <laughs> so, yes, like, okay. um, so um i think the buddha in a certain way is always encouraging you to 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 let go to let go the, the things mm. um parable of the raft where he says my dharma is like a raft if you want to cross the river you you find a raft you take the river across the raft across the river but once you get to the further shore you don't carry the raft around with you now of course people like to be premature about it <laughs> assume that they've crossed the river quite early on when they're uh, quite yeah. possibly drowning midstream um but nonetheless um the buddha's quite in a way buddhism just kind of undoes itself as a as a package of teachings and practices, because it's not it's not trying to self perpetuate. It's trying to lead you to liberation, and yeah. the experience of liberation is its own country, as it's where it's its own territory. But I think yeah, you the- on, on something earlier that you said that I think people don't enjoy, which is the rug being pulled out from them all the time. They, people want certainty people want to know this is a constant when we go back to where we're talking about why people don't let go of god i think there's that i i want some certainty I want some anchor i want you know so that i want i i want that north star if you will that i can always kind of find my way that the rug out <clears throat> from under me because there really is no you know certainty per se then then i'm just free falling and i always say to people well enjoy the fall that's that's kind of the whole point of this because there's there's no there's no bottom to god so yeah let's keep falling and going deeper and 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 discover all the splendor that lies at, at those levels but that can be scary for some people sure yeah yeah there are some uh, theological traditions that are very similar to what you described the buddha doing about uh discussing about reality called negative theology or apophatic theology. Uh, but they would use that toward God. God is that which we can't speak about. So he's, he's not this, he's not that. It's, it's that same idea of taking away all those familiar things, but you can never quite arrive at exactly what God is. And I think that similar approach speaks to the mystery that is existence and the mystery that is being and we're we're longing to figure that stuff out, but ultimately, words fail us to. Sure. You know, yeah. We, we can't. Or 
or it's a great PR move, so you never pin down on any specific answer. That is genius. Well, the Zen, the Zen people like to talk about, you know, beyond words and concepts, and there is something in that. I, I think the only question I'd have um, for someone who, who retains the metaphor of God or the reality of God or the language of God is, does the framework, can the framework be let go? Because obviously the, the basic, yeah. and even with a subtle version of God, is that there's a discretion or a discrepancy between human beings and, and God. And even partaking in the being of God in a more mystic religious tradition isn't quite the same as what the Buddha thinks getting at with the idea of enlightenment or awakening, which is a right. better translation. So um, I guess it would depend, again, on practice rather than ideas. From our standpoint, we can see the horizon. And that point is the point maybe we're all, talk, we're all trying to reach for with, with language. But when you arrive at the, the horizon as an experience, it's just completely other than that. And as long as you're not at that point in a framework that restrains you, or constricts you, or constrains you. Yeah. All right. So, so I like personal stories because just because um, you grew up Catholic. What? Yeah, got- yeah what got you into i mean buddhism like that's that's i mean and you grew up you didn't grow up here in the us you grew up in scotland i assume right yeah yeah so you're in scotland you're catholic um you know path to buddhism may not seem like the logical outcome so potted bio you should have a little theme tune for this bit like um yeah uh, okay, so I grew up in the west of Scotland, um, more or less in the city of Glasgow, sort of roundabout. Um, Glasgow in the west of Scotland is a bit like Belfast, which people usually in the States have heard about, certainly on the east coast. Um, riven, uh, riven with religious division between Catholics and Protestants, and, right. and vi- violent religious tradition, not not just kind of they don't like each other. There's been a real history of, of active violence, often played out in the context of soccer matches uh, between the two local teams, Celtic and Rangers. And the thing is, you laugh, but every time Celtic and Rangers play, the emergency rooms in Glasgow cancel all of their leave because there's wow. so many stabbings oh and there's so much domestic violence happens from wow. the team who loses. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it, it's been rough. And um, I grew up uh, in a Catholic, very strongly kind of Irish, Scots Catholic community. Half my family is also Sicilian, so both getting it from both sides, Catholic nice. Italians, Catholic Irish. And um, I thought about the priesthood from quite early on as an act of interest. Um, I was involved with various different uh, orders growing up. Um, and I went to a Jesuit high school, uh, so I had a Jesuit education, which I got quite a lot from. Um my father died when I was 11. It's a big, strong, central kind of event. And uh, we had nine children. So there was a, a strong wow. sense of the, the kind of intensity of reality um, mm. and, the, and the opening to, to ideas of the priesthood and religious life, spiritual life, as the kind of natural response was always there. Um, I, I struggled from quite an early age, like a very early age, with whether I believed God existed or not. I really wanted to. And, um, I, you know, I was an ultra boy, etc. from an early age. 
That looks very cute in that little circus and <laughs> nice. tan. And um, I want to see pictures. I know you've got pictures. I don't, well, I probably do have a picture somewhere. Maybe not. Maybe making my first communion or something. There you little, go. little Michael. Nice. <laughs> nice. And um, yeah, I got, I got to I got to the point of leaving school, leaving high school, and um, thinking quite seriously about the priesthood. Went to the university in London. Um, and ended up living in Paris, in France, and was having a real crisis at that point. Like, I'm either going to go and become a Jesuit, or I'm going to leave because I, I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile the kind of uh, at that point the social teaching, etc., of the church, and right. uh, and what seemed you know patently ridiculous ideas philosophically. Um, so eventually, I did have to call it and decided to leave, and um, found that very painful and quite challenging. And we're sitting in Notre Dame Cathedral, gazing at the giant, you know, vault and thinking, mm. my goodness, what have you done? Um, <laughs> and uh, when I came back, I had a friend, uh, we'd lived together in London at, at university and uh, he'd gone off to India and was writing me letters and he'd, he'd told me that he'd done some uh, Thai forest meditation when he was in India. And I'd sort of lodged that somewhere as a kind of, you know, thing to try. We had a bit of a boyish pact together to find it. Whoever finds the truth first will let the other person know. Yeah, <laughs> love it. And yeah, and um, so when I got back to Scotland, eventually, uh, some friends of my mum from her work were going to a Highland Buddhist retreat centre to do a, an intro to meditation weekend. And my mum actually thought it was a Catholic meditation weekend, so she uh, told me about it. I don't think she would have. She'd known it was a Buddhist one, mm. and. Uh, she uh, she told me about this. I went off with her friends on this weekend, and I definitely had a very strong experience of coming home to a tradition. And through that um, summer, I, I started to explore Buddhism at the same place, a very beautiful part of Scotland. Um, and I remember my first experience of somebody writing up that that uh, that teaching I mentioned at the start about conditionality. And there's a there's a very famous uh, kind of root formula for that which goes something like this being that becomes from the arising of this that arises this not being that does not become from the ceasing of this that ceases and i was watching the person write it up and That's put, the, put the commas between each phrase and there was something about these commas it was like the kind of seesaw point in the universe or something like you know this mm. being that becomes it was a very strong experience of it and uh, i think at that point i knew i was a buddhist um took me a few years to work out the religious side of it i was very wary of religion and religious organizations because i just managed to extract myself from one um, how'd your family respond uh not brilliantly initially so well at least for some of them there's a lot of them so some of them were fine um, my mum certainly found it challenging. She, she found right, it challenging yeah. when I was given a new name, which uh, you know I completely understand. Um, uh, but I think she could see, and other people could see, that I was happy and happier, and um, I've kind of seen me hopefully grow into that space a bit. Um, so nowadays, I think it's fine. Um, I think some of them have found it a bit weird than the Buddhist in the family, but some of them have been really encouraging. And in fact, all of them. More or less, have been really encouraging. And when you when you go home, do they call you Chandradasa or do they call you by your? 
birth name? Uh, some of them call me Chandradasa, some of them call me Michael, which is my given name. Um, and that's fine. I don't mind. Gotcha. I ask because I know I, uh, you know, I imagine for some people who've experienced having the crisis of faith and, you know, leaving the the religion of their upbringing, especially when all their other family or most of their family is connected to that as well. Yeah. Um, and then they go to something else. I mean, you know, best case scenario, you you go to Unity, which is Christian like, or you, go, you know, <laughs> or you or you go, you know, you go to you go to Buddhism or heaven forbid you become an atheist. Like, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. it's it, it can be very challenging for not just that individual, but their but their family as well. And and sometimes it sometimes it doesn't end well. Well, my family, it's interesting with so many brothers and sisters, like you get to see these fascinating kaleidoscopic variations sort of theme. Mm -hmm. And um, actually they're all they're all super bright and they've all kind of had their own paths of exploration. And I can relate to something in all of them in the way mm. they've approached it. Some of them have explored Buddhism. Some of them have explored other forms of Christianity. Some of them, uh, I had one sister who was a Franciscan nun for 20 odd years. Um, wow. Another brother who trained for the priesthood for a while and then decided not to follow that through. So, you know, definitely it's a family where religion is alive and um, a vital part of people's experience. We all went to schools where we were taught by monks priests and nuns, etc. Um, and that's still a feature of, of West of Scotland Catholicism, is that there's a, a kind of recognisable strain of, of how important religion is to the community. We, you know, it's a very strong community of faith. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I was in Glasgow uh, in June and got to uh, travel around a bit and uh, went to one of the big cathedrals and walked through the, uh, what is it, the uh, burial grounds. Uh, Oh yeah, you know, going up the little mountain and you kind of look over the city and it's beautiful. The, ne the necropolis. There it's it is. Statue of John Knox in the middle. The of statue of John. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's. I mean, Scotland's the home of all that. John Knox and Calvin and you know. Yeah, and that's the tradition I grew up in. Reformed Christianity, so it was like you know a pilgrimage of sorts. <laughs> and now, and now you are UCC and. And I'm sure many people are not happy with you. <laughs> yeah, I've got my own trials and tribulations. Uh, yes, you do. You know. Yes, you do. Like Anytime said, you're on a journey, it's a, it can be a struggle for. Uh, Chandra Das, I, I always say to Brian, he's one crisis of faith away from becoming a unity minister. Just one. <laughs> I, I always say to you, you're one crisis of faith away from becoming a Buddhist. That's true too. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, and we're all six degrees away from Kevin Bacon, so it could all sort of. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Maybe Kevin Bacon is God and we didn't know it all along. Oh, damn, that's a depressing reality. <laughs> oh, so did you have a time where, as you were coming into Buddhism, where you did have a sense of uh, just sort of a nihilistic despair, where it's kind of like, yeah, maybe God doesn't even exist and God is this sort of construct that we've used to, you know, to satisfy some deep longing within us, that need for permanence, or this just this cultural thing that we've carried around. And when you began to let go of that, how did that go? Well, when I was in France, particularly, I um, I found it really painful, mainly because I just didn't have an emotional vocabulary for what it was to be a spiritual person without all the frameworks and constructs and and. Uh, mythologies and stories, etc., narratives of Christianity, Catholicism in particular, and I, I literally that hadn't been a big part of my education to 
to have any intimate knowledge of what it might be like to practice in, an, in another faith. And actually, because the central issue for me was God, um, another version of God didn't, wasn't going to cut it. So, um, uh... you know, there was in the West of Scotland, certainly there wasn't a... There wasn't much awareness, I think, of non-theistic religion. I mean, Buddhism is probably the world's only non-theistic religion in a in a kind of developed sense, and um, right. it's a uh, it, it was just it took me quite a while to orient myself. And yeah, as a young man, I definitely suffered from depression, and um, I think the the existential bottom dropping out of things <laughs> didn't help. Um, yeah, but you know, it was quite—it was quite a revelation to experience a, a community. Our, our particular Buddhist community is very strong on friendship as a as a real context for practice and, and a practice in itself. And coming across a, a community where you know, I was surrounded by other people who could just attend to the nature of things um, and sit with it without it being. A catastrophe you know like the loss of something like god it's more mm. like just sit the the kind of the awareness and the possibilities of that um i think that was kind of quite a transformative moment for me now can you be buddhist and still believe in god because how some people have shared it with me is that you know it doesn't matter if you believe in god or not uh the the principles of buddhism are more about your self-transformation. Belief in God is optional. Mm. Uh, no, I would say that's just not true. I think, boom. Well, it's not true. I think, it's, well, you know, again. Now you're going to be think, mean to the first person that we mentioned, right? It's no, time I'm to, not going to be mean. I time mean, to I be think mean. The, the, look, Buddhists don't have a monopoly on wisdom, uh, neither as ideas nor as experience. And Again, I think it has to it has to come back to what is the life that's lived, not what are the you know what's the, the kind of coherence of your ideas, etc. Having said that, um, Buddhism is a non-theistic faith. Um, it's got some very clear reasons for not going down the path of God, and at the same time, when you look at how Buddhism develops across cultures, you know, it starts off in, in India, northern India, and then moves into a variety of different cultures and countries where it takes on a myriad shapes and, and some of those um, iterations of Buddhism, uh, it can look very much like gods or divine beings, etc., are involved. Mm-hmm. But the experience from the inside is not the same. The relationship to those figures is not the same. So I would say that someone who's telling themselves that it doesn't matter if I believe in God or not, I would encourage them to <laughs> to look at what is going on with that. Like, what is the yeah. view? The right. Buddha's all, the Buddha's always saying to you, let go of views, let go of holding on to views. So if you're holding on to uh, God, in a way, that's fine. If you decide you want to hold on to God, that's absolutely fine. It's not, you know, like a bad person. Or, but reality is reality. So to the extent that you find Buddhist ideas interesting, great. To the extent that you feel a tension in your life, between your relationship to what you perceive as God and the kinds of teachings that you're exploring, that's where the, that's where the, the creative tension is going to be, isn't it? That's where the rub is. Mm. So ultimately, if a if a person does Christianity properly and they do Buddhism properly, they really can't combine them because at the center of Christianity is God. <laughs> um. Again, you know. I, I'm going back. I, I would say, that. I would say, I would say, I would say, fundamentally, no. It's a confusion. I think, I think it's much better to say 
um, you've got one tradition that's centered, as you say, on the the idea of God, whether that's a very traditional, literalistic, you know, bloke with a white beard, Old Testament Judeo-Christian version, or a super subtle, refined, nuanced, mystic version, you know. Um, unity version. Unity version. Post-unity. Hey, hey, easy now. <laughs> trans trans <laughs> unity version. Um, you know, whichever version of God, that yeah. uh, the Buddha basically dismantles those things in his teaching and he does it for a reason now yeah. i think you can i think another thing is good to bear in mind about buddhism is that it's method not doctrine that's mm. important so the the practices the teachings are all designed to help you move towards an experiential version of liberation they're not interested in you being right about the nature of reality ah that's a big difference right there <laughs> yep <laughs> so um i think i think when again I, I quite often like to be provocative and say um you can do a lot as i say i, I get older I, I find myself drawn very strongly to my own um, judeo-christian tradition because it's very familiar to me it's it's the air i breathed when i was growing up yeah, no doubt. Um, i've got some friends who've uh, I've learned a lot from in the, the Jewish uh, Midrash tradition. Mm. Um, that said, I think um, there are certain things you can't get past in Christianity without having to work extremely hard to make them mean something quite different from the traditional view of them. And there is a certain point where I sort of want to say to people, well, why not just get all that out of the way? <laughs> Let's get on with, <laughs> like, you know, um, so it depends. I can continue to be, uh, you know, I can continue to unpack this if you like. I don't know if I'm scaring anybody off well, at this point from your... I, I read this quote from um, the Buddhist teacher D.T. Suzuki, who I believe is a Zen uh, teacher. Yeah. And he stated that every time he saw a crucifixion scene or a cross, it reminded him of the, of the deep gap that lies between Christianity and Buddhism yeah. because of the histor <clears throat> historical event that Christianity is centered on and Buddhism does not have that affixation to history. Okay, so here's here's a, this is me at my most provocative, so public warning. I would say a couple of things about that. Number one, um, I, think the, I think the idea that it's a historic event is deeply questionable. If you read the Golden Bough as a kind of evocation of the, the mythic layering that's going on in Christianity, which I think is super important and even quite effective, um, there's a there's a deep set of questions about whether the crucifixion and the resurrection are remotely related to history or whether they're much better viewed through the lens of myth. So that's prov provocation number one. Um, what I quite often like to say to people is, um, I think it's very significant that the central image of Christianity is a dead human being nailed to a dead piece of wood, to a dead tree. Why do you got to be so? <laughs> hang on, hang on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring this thought back in a minute. So yeah, shots well, fired. So hang on, I'm gonna, hang on. Let me, well, let me go on. I would say it depends because for hang some, on. the central, the central image is the resurrection. That's right? no, I was about to say that's my next thought is okay. the, the the Catholic Church took hold of this at a certain point then after Vatican II and said you either have to display the crucified Christ as a symbol of suffering which I'll come back to, or the resurrected Christ, which, as he says, is a more positive image. Yeah? But nonetheless, actually, usually it involves nails and a big wooden cross, which used to be a tree. Whereas right. the central image in Buddhism is a living human being sitting under a tree, a living tree, watching his breath. Now, I think 
I, I really don't mean to be superficial about this. I think the, the central image of the crucified Christ and the resurrected Christ says a lot about the human condition, a lot about the experience of suffering, and is and is therefore not to be dismissed. I think the central image of Buddhism goes straight to what you can do about it. And there's a kind of, um, I think there's an interesting uh, thought process to go and looking at those two images and what they're trying to achieve. Um, there's plenty of suffering in the Buddha's myth, let's say myth, mythology, so I'm not even going to call it historical. The, the, the mythological narrative of the Buddha and his path has got plenty of suffering in it, but it's interesting that the central images have condensed through time in those particular ways. And that's as provocative as I'm going to be. I'll be super nice yeah. from now on for many minutes. So, I mean, I definitely hear you about uh, the deep mythological uh, pieces to all of the uh, Christian history and stories and historical events. Uh, I would say I, I, I lean toward uh, the person of Jesus existing as being a historical event, as well as his death, given um, well, not only the New Testament records, but other um, well, given, given records time. of the time. But I'm going to set that aside. There's, I mean, almost, there's almost no historical evidence. Well, I would, I would, listen, I won't, I won't argue with that, but, but you're, it's small. It's small. It was first century, first century Jerusalem occupied by the Romans, like crucifixions were a daily event. So it's very likely that, that the Romans kept really good records. <laughs> so if, if he was, if, if, if he did and he was alive. And actually, so, so rather than this be a historical argument though about facts, what I'm interested in is why does it matter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why does it matter? Does it matter if Jesus ever actually existed? I mean, you read Fraser in the Golden Bow. He's talking about the cult of Attis and Sibeli and mm -hmm. the fact that you can map Christ exactly onto the 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 sorts of um, cults of belief that were um, the Roman soldiers were coming into contact with in the East, and that the adoption of Christianity was partly a response to. So whether it is all just that stuff, I don't think that in a way. Um, reduces the significance <laughs> like no this, I, is the story an effective means to an end does it does it change your life does it help you practice and be right we, and we have to be willing to ask those questions i i agree with that a hundred percent and something i want us to, to chat about um after we after we wrap up is you know in uh one of the things that we talk about as we were alluding to is the historicity and and in christianity there were there are those who will say you know well because all this stuff was written uh way way after or years decades after um you know jesus died resurrected that we we can't question the historicity earlier you said you know buddhist teachings were written way after because it's just an oral tradition in buddhism is is there also that questioning of the historicity did buddha actually say these things as written now can we trust that he did because they were written way after well i mentioned my friend earlier his talk about um what do we really know about the buddha and he was saying very little you can you can you can um study anthropologically you can study um archaeologically uh you can certainly look at the history of ideas and say that is there seems to be this one arising of an idea that was hitherto unknown and has never quite been repeated so um, I think there's evidence that the the Buddha existed as a person. Whether what's written down in, in I mean, the Buddhist scriptures dwarf Christian scriptures by a, a matter of, you know, it's 
exponentially larger. Yeah. Right, so the, the orders of magnitude bigger. They can't all possibly have been the teachings of this one person. I mean, the Buddha, the Buddha did walk around northern India for 40 years teaching as a, as a mature adult. I think that's another interesting provocation with Christian teaching is to say, well, is the teaching mature? You've got three years of teaching. It's not very worked out. And it's been subject to a lot of misinterpretation since, let's face it, historically. And that may be to do with the source. Maybe, um, maybe he was a prodigy and didn't need a lot of time. Just saying. Well, again, I would just look at it historically and say, how's it worked out since then? Like how, you know, Buddhism has its, has its dark spots in history um, in terms of people getting a hold of the wrong end of the stick and using it to justify bad behavior. But it's pretty rare historically over, right. over about 3,000 years. Um, Western civilization has been absolutely racked by people having arguments about what Jesus meant. Ain't that the truth? So I, I would so, say that's, that's related. So I, I I regret biting on the historical carrot that you extended. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, am I being a bad guest? Is this no, 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 no. <laughs> I I really no. I'm interested in this no um, <laughs> this this quote that we have from uh, theologian Paul Knitter, who wrote a book entitled "Without Buddha, I Could Not Be Christian." He said, "If if Christians insist that if you want peace, work for justice, and." Buddhists would counter insist if you want peace, be peace. And so I'm just wondering what um, you see in your uh, experience of the Buddhist community uh, tensions, particularly in the climate we're living in today, yeah, yeah. In, between being versus doing. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the big um, contemporary Buddhist movements um, that I think comes out of that process you were hinting at, Ogan, of, of questioning your own tradition as well. Um, one of them is engaged Buddhism. You know, you get quite a lot of talk about engaged, socially engaged Buddhism, and that's people trying to live out the Dharma, live out the Buddhist teachings of, of mindfulness and compassion um, as transformative agents in society and therefore getting involved in social issues. Uh, and there are plenty of social issues to get involved in, let's say, let's face it, in modern day America. And um, that is a tension in, I think, within, uh, well, it's difficult to talk about the Buddhist community because there's so many forms of Buddhism, of course, now. But um, right. I think it's a tension to the extent that the Buddha said you should not cleave to views. And I think that you can't solve the world on the terms of the world. Politics is not going to be the answer. That doesn't mean politics is unimportant. It doesn't mean that being a part of your community isn't important. Um, I'm perfectly happy to go out and march in support of all sorts of um, things that seem to me to be trying to set up the conditions for a more just world, a fairer world, a more compassionate world. Um, at the same time, I think if I, I can notice myself, if I allow myself to get too caught up in the, the great swirl of views that makes up the world, happiness does not lie that way. That doesn't mean I want to check out of reality or, or you know, um, I sort of hive myself off from my fellow human beings, but there's a certain level at which you cannot, you can't resolve the inherent unsatisfactoriness of nature uh, without quite a radical shift in the way you relate to it. And mm. sometimes that requires periods of withdrawal. Sometimes it requires periods of engagement. I'm sure you recognise that as Christians. It's, it's a tension. It's actually a, a, an interesting tension in my spiritual community right now. Of, of, of uh, you know, we have people 
want to be withdrawing and we have people who want to be engaging and and you know we're we're really working to to find acceptance of both parties in the same place so mm. um, uh, the withdrawers and the yeah. and the engagers um, oh. yeah well one of the issues in our particular community and actually most not quite all but most buddhist communities and certainly in the west is that they're incredibly white middle class things affairs that's who gets attracted to them and that's because they grew out of 60s counterculture and the way it was framed the way the um sort of emphasis put on translation certain kind of educational uh, adoption of it in academia all sorts of social reasons um i've got some some good friends in in my community on the west coast who are doing some really fantastic i think really valuable work in trying to get Buddhist communities from different uh, faith, different groups to say, if you want to be meaningful, you're going to have to reach out to communities of color. You're going to have to reach out to um, people who are transgender. You're going to have to move past some of the, the traditional niches where your ideas have settled and been well received. And, um, you know, the ground of Buddhism in the future is going to have to be quite radically different. And I think that's great. And I mean, I think that's, that's exactly what you need. Nice. Fantastic. Fantastic. Diversity. I'm glad I can bring the diversity to this conversation this evening. Um. Is that, I'm, I'm curious, I know you've got to wrap up, but I'm curious, so can, like in, in the Unity Church, is it also an issue? I mean, are you unusual as a black minister? Is it, is it kind of, is it something the community even talks about as a, a kind of national level? Like, how are we doing on the diversity front? Or um yes yes uh unity unity as a as an as a national international organization but nationally in the u.s um the the average unity congregant for some time has been um you know white female in her early to mid 60s um and the average unity minister has been the same um I'm I am an anomaly in unity. I am I am a black I am black and under fifty, and there you, you know you can you can count. There was a time you could count on one hand the number of unity ministers under forty or under fifty. Um, and um, interesting. So yeah, we 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 have that issue as well. But then again, unity started in the Midwest, so you know it's not not that strange, but. But I think mm. I think it's something, and and it's it's interesting that you know here I am in in New England, um, and it's uh, my church is like ninety eight ninety nine percent white, and um, and they hired a black minister, and uh, which, and and I and I think I think for many reasons, you know, notwithstanding my 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 charm and wit, but I think also be you know, or the the previous minister who founded the place was, you know, that that stereotypical unity minister, a female who in her sixth season, and she was a, a powerfully engaging speaker and, and loving presence, and and they loved her tremendously. And when they were, you know, looking for another minister, you know, we had a tryout in unity. We try out for churches. You know, there were four finalists, and the other three were female the other three were white and two of them were also in their you know 60s i i was the anomaly and i think and i think this church again not 
notwithstanding the connection we had already established, I think they were like, you know, we're we're ready for uh, for something else as well. And and you know, the, this is a this is a very loving congregation. They also very in many ways uh, laid back, irreverent in many times, in many ways, and and it was a good fit for me. Um, and people, some people, you know, look to me to try to explain like what's going on. And, mm. and I am equally perplexed because I may be black, but I'm not American. So there's that as well to throw in the mix, uh. it all that much more uh, of a sweet, complex mixture. Yeah. So, yeah. There's that. It's a complex reality. Mm. It always is. <laughs> Ooh, that almost brings us back around, doesn't it? Yeah, complex see, reality with complex factors. Uh, man, this <laughs> rising so and passing. Exactly. <laughs> we, man, we need to have you back, Chandradasa. This is great, and I feel like I have twenty more questions I want to get into with you. So we'll definitely I'll be happy to come back anytime you like. Have to do this again, and uh, thank you, friends, for tuning in to Pub Theology Live. You can connect and spread the word on social media. And don't forget, you can listen to us anytime you like on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. And if you want to find a conversation like this happening in your town, check out the directory at pubtheology.com. And if you don't see one, you can find some resources to start your own. And thank you again to our sponsors, Craft Beer Cellar, who you'll find at craftbeercellar.com, and Wink Wine Club, you'll find at trywink.com slash PT Live. Thank you to our guest, uh, Chandra Dasa, um, and I appreciate you being on this. You know, Brian, he said, uh, he when we get together, he's like, you and I should have a podcast. You know what, uh, Chandra Dasa, why don't you just show up here occasionally and, and you know... <laughs> Call, call it call it the middle way. <laughs> I, I do. I run for I run for for podcasts already, so I'll be quite happy just to guest on yours. Well, there you go. Very nicely done. And, and call us, people. Call us. Leave a voicemail. We want to hear from you. Your questions nine eight zero PT Live zero or nine eight zero seven eight five four eight three zero. Until next time, friends. Drink responsibly and keep those conversations flowing. <laughs> In response to um, shooting a gun in space, Dave on Twitter says, that sounds like an experiment for the new right-wing NASA. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but the results won't be accurately reported. Unless... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they won't store, store it on their website either. Yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. Man. The, rogue, the rogue NASA account would, would be tweeting out what really happened. Um, so I do have a question for you, Chandra Dasa, if you got a few more minutes. Sure. Yeah. You mentioned the engaged... Buddhism aspect mm -hmm. of things, um, <laughs> not not so so. I mean, assuming there's a disengaged aspect, <laughs> a lazy ass Buddhists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't want to say it. bad news, <laughs> but 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 do these do these two uh, aspects elements find themselves at conflict with each other? I mean, is, is I mean, not not at the level of something like liberation theology, saying that. 
and 1860s and 70s in the Catholic Church where you've got a real, a re, you know, not just a tension, but actually almost open warfare in the church between a sort of left wing and a right wing. You don't have, to, you don't tend to have that kind of thing. I think what you get is um, people looking at the activity of uh, engaged Buddhism and saying, well, when you, when you butt up against the world of hard politics or when you um, butt up against certain social issues, are you politicizing the community? Are you politicizing the Dharma? So, you know, we run a small Buddhist center here. I, of course, I know some of the people who come along are Republicans. Um, if you start shaping your discourse about the Dharma, about compassion, for example, using political examples, the chances are at a certain point that's going to become quite a live question for people that's like, right. I, yeah. is there a place for me here? Now, there might well just be legitimate questions from Republicans about can you lead a Buddhist spiritual life if you're a Republican? Um, I was hearing the other day about somebody who, in our community who's voted for Trump. And um, I find that quite hard to sort of cognize. But at the same time, it happened. Right. Um, so it's like, well, that's just really interesting. and, and um, Makes you question your vetting process. <laughs> well, there isn't one. That's the point. It's like, no, I'm, 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 <laughs> but, that, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because there is that... Um, but I, but there's I, a tendency I, to want to exclude people, isn't there? There's a tendency to want to make someone the other. But I know why that happens, though. Why, why that happens is because, and I think this is a Western world phenomenon, we compartmentalize. This is my spiritual life. This is my work life. This is my political life. This is my family life. We, we, we separate these things out in our mind somehow and, and say it's okay to do that. We, we draw the lines between the spiritual and the secular and the sacred and all these, you know, we, we compartmentalize, you know, in, I, I, you know, when we, when we look at, at you know, original Judaism and, and other faiths, there, there is an, an Islam, there is no separation between spiritual and sacred. It is your life and, and how you live as a, as a, as a person, you know, kind of, you know, and, and I'll give the exception for extremism, but how you live as a person reflects your religious and spiritual values but but folks are really comfortable with compartmentalizing and say here's 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 my political view and even even the the outcomes of my political view may not necessarily align with my maybe spiritual um beliefs or desires or how i think it should roll out spiritually but they're two separate things it might be that i suppose a, a, a good republican might say well actually you know i I think that the, there are two separate spheres of um, activity in a way, and that the best way to organize the world on its own terms is properly separate from spiritual concern. I mean, I, I tend to agree with you that I think it's, you know, you've got to live it out. And if your views about politics cause harm, if they, if they lead to harm arising, mm -hmm. then you have to really look at that. Um, and good Democrats. Good Democrats do it too. This is not just a Republican. Oh yeah, well, I mean, you could argue that the whole American political system, in a way, is so so right of center anyway that it's um, exactly. you know, the, the the kind of society that would be living more closely to the values of the Dharma, um, would be have to be really radically different. Yep, I'm sure that's true of Christian philosophy. The good Christian um, would have to acknowledge that 
you know, you may be one country under God, but not really. No, <laughs> like, no, no we're not. And we, and honestly, we never, we never were. You never were. That's part of the mythology. Of religious freedom. No, so no. We never were. You know, um, mm. so it's 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 always fascinating to to when when that comes up to remind people that yeah, no, our founding fathers weren't exactly all, you know, Christian Bible toting Christians. Um, or, or even if they were, they were, they were clear that, you know, that whole idea of separation and state, uh, separation of church and state, which again, kind of a misnomer, but it was really, again, that idea of let's, let's not let our, uh, religious, spiritual, whatever beliefs so influence our policies. But again, and and again, there's that compartmentalization. There's that there's that separation, and one can make the argument that yes, it's a good thing, or no, it's not a good thing. You can be either way on it. But but I honestly think that you know, on an individual basis, um, if the two don't align somewhere, you are experiencing some really internal conflict. Sure. Yeah. Pretty sure Jesus wouldn't have. Um... Let's assume for a second he was a historical character. He wouldn't have. Um, <laughs> there you go. He would, thought experiment. He wouldn't. He would. Yeah, thought experiment. Let's get really wacky. Um, he he certainly wouldn't have been um, very impressed with what's happening at the moment in terms of political discourse, particularly around suffering and weakness and poverty and those kind of things. It's like yeah. the poor era was with us for sure. And maybe there is a degree of political or real politic in that, even that little bit of exposition the poor are always with us but at the same time um living a radical life where you're you're just stripping it back to simplicity to to practice to uh, fellowship i suppose the, the disciples as a kind of it's a very interesting body isn't it because it's the practice of community as a key context um that you know that's quite far from contemporary american ideas of community I saw Family speaking of session. speaking of thought experiment, I saw this great tweet the other day that said thought experiment. Suppose Jesus had said something truly radical like turn the other cheek and love your enemy, would you still follow him? That's right, yeah. I mean And I just see because the irony, right, of, of how we see Christianity expressed uh in the West, it just seems so oblivious to some of the core teachings that Jesus as recorded as recorded in the gospels um taught that it's just like what are what are we what have we created what are we talking about well i think mm. it's gotten to the point where we're consciously or not we latch onto the teachings that support what we want to believe you know like you know which 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 news network are we going to watch we're going to watch the ones that support and reinforce our beliefs not the other way around you know, let's not forget the day he turned the tables and was whipping people out of the temple. Like he, he had yeah, those. I think the Buddha might have something to say about that. If you're gonna take, if you're gonna take the man and his teachings, take the man and his teachings. Same, sure. Same with ML. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. I'm like, people, people love to quote, quote the, you know. Only love can was it love can light can only, only love can drive a dark yeah. hey yeah sounds great yeah then read the passages that he wrote when he had really harsh words to say to the white establishment and 
and harsh words he had to say for the people sure. who stood by and watched and did, and did nothing and didn't pick a side. I mean, well, that that MLK quote is quite interesting because it's almost a direct translation of a piece of Buddhist scripture, which is very old. So one of the eldest, the earliest texts is the Dhammapada, which you've probably heard of, and. Yeah. Uh, there's a key bit in the Dhammapada where it says, um, hatred does not hate, cease by hatred, hatred ceases only by law. This is the, um, sorry, but hatred ceases only by love. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. You two will one day die. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? Wow. Ooh. And that, what, what I think is important about that is the second bit. It's, like, it's, not, it's not just the kind of, um, hallmark card bit of our facebook meme bit of it hatred will not you know hatred doesn't drive out love only only right. love does that or whatever it's like it's like the context for that is you will one day die yes that's knowing huge. this how can you quarrel the madness of that like and that i think that again it's that thing of like really working your teaching out and following it through to where it has its it's rooted in something everyone can relate to, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, or whether you um, are impressed by Black Lives Matter or not, you can relate to one day you will die. The people you love will die. What are you going to do? Mm. Nice. Mm. Well, you know what? MLK lifted a lot of quotes that we give him credit <laughs> for. That whole, that whole moral arc bending towards justice, that wasn't his either. You know. That's right, yeah. But I mean, in a way, it's, it's great. The sentiment is great. But I think unless you can move it past the realm of sentiment into yeah. somebody connecting at the level of their own experience with why they're afraid, why do they lash out, why do they, why do they make immigrants the problem or why do they make poor people the problem or whatever it is, it's because they're afraid of death. Because they, yeah. they're afraid of losing the fixedness of themselves and their families and all the people they love. And... And for many people, oh, see now I just want to have a whole new conversation about this obsession with eternal life in Christianity, right? This I'm going to exist forever. Yes, not only not only does God exist, but I'm going to exist for all eternity. The thing and, is, if all it needs is a little kink to the a little kink where you just stop taking it literally, and it's like you you know what are all those things saying? They're saying really fascinating things about what it is to be a human being. What don't construct a don't construct a reality around it unless it's an as if reality mm. like live in an as if reality if you want but you can only live in an as if reality if it delivers you a different experience and i think there is an open question at this point after two and a half thousand years it's like is this delivering a different experience <laughs> like <laughs> Oh my goodness! Awesome. All right, yeah, we definitely, we definitely having you back on. We'll, we'll talk about the whole afterlife and just edit that whole bit as well. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. No. Split yeah. it. You got to get in a reincarnation too. That's a whole other thing. We'll do, we'll yeah, do that, well, a, I, now I could get into some real trouble there <laughs> <laughs> with my own lot. <laughs> the tables will be turned then. Be like, there we go. Nice. That was awesome fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks right. for having me. Absolutely. Nice to meet you, Brian. Likewise, sir. Have a good night, all.